0: Hi, I'm Kathleen Hicks, Senior Vice President and Director of the International Security Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. And this is Defense 2020, a CSIS podcast examining critical defense issues in the United States' 2020 election cycle. We bring in defense experts from across the political spectrum to survey the debates over the U.S. military strategy, missions, and funding. This podcast is made possible by contributions from BAE Systems, Lockheed Martin, Northrop Grumman, and the TALIS Group. On this episode of Defense 2020, I host a discussion with three experts on balancing the national security toolkit. My colleague, Melissa Dalton, Deputy Director of the International Security Program, Senior Fellow, and Director of the Cooperative Defense Project at CSIS. Ambassador Ruben Brigety, Dean of the Elliott School of International Affairs at George Washington University, and Jamie Fly, President and CEO of Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty. So this podcast series has been focused, of course, around defense as it is in its title, but we thought we'd spend a few episodes talking about the other pieces of the National Security Toolkit and how we should even think about security in the world that we're in today COVID-19 has put that, I think, into stark relief for many Americans, that what makes them feel safe and secure may not be necessarily directly tied to the military or national defense. So we want to explore some of those issues today. And of course, we have three great guests with us to do so. Let's just jump right in. Ruben, let's start with you. You're the Dean of School of International Affairs. You must have to grapple all the time with students trying to think through what does security mean today. How do you conceptualize this challenge as it gets beyond issues of hard power and defense?
1: Well, there are a lot of ways to think about it. And and, and thank you very much for having me uh, along with this conversation. It seems to me that one of the most striking ways to, to conceptualize it is that traditionally in security circles, there is an underlying binary assumption uh, and that is friendly versus enemy. And that by definition, anything that your enemy may do can be viewed as a threat to the friendlies. And conversely, you're constantly trying to protect yourself and upgrade your own defenses as a friendly against potential feints or moves from your adversary, from the enemy. The problem with pandemic disease is that the same threat applies to both friendly and enemy. And in fact, that which can make your enemy insecure can also make you insecure. Or conversely, that which can improve your enemy's strength against this particular threat necessarily also improves your own strength against this threat. And this is no better way conceptualized than the fact that this virus, this pandemic started in China, obviously our greatest peer adversary in the world today. And so what clearly made Chinese populations uh, vulnerable to this also made us vulnerable. And why does that matter? It matters because it goes to your very conception of how the world ought to be organized and how we ought to approach it. Do you approach it from a perspective of of general collective security or do you approach it from a general perspective of competition and adversarial behavior? And obviously there are different times in which different approaches are better. But if your general approach, quite frankly, as the Trump administration's was, uh, and as is, as was said, written explicitly in an op-ed by uh, former National Security Advisor H.R. McMaster uh, very early on in the Trump administration, as America first is one that's fundamentally um, based on competition, then it's hard to see both a threat to an adversary as also a threat to you and also inversely seeing as a means of trying to strengthen your adversary against this particular threat as a means of improving your own security. And I think that that was, quite frankly, the fundamental failure of this administration in this pandemic. It's that framework through which they saw it, which is why, for example, the president, or at least part of the reason why the president ignored multiple amplified warnings from the intelligence community as early as January 2020 about the significance of this threat uh, emanating from Wuhan uh, and why it was so critical to take actions, urgent actions, to prepare the people of the United States uh, in order to counter it.
0: So let's get to the issue of what the security threats are that we face and the tools that we have. And, Jamie, let me go to you because you're on the front lines of one set of those challenges. And as part of American security posture is, you know, out in Europe looking at the information space. How do these questions strike you from that perspective?
2: Well, I think to pick up on what Ruben was describing, uh, really the the leveling effect of a a pandemic like the one that we're dealing with with coronavirus right now, there are a lot of other uh, types of disruptive forces that are having a similar leveling effect. And one that I've been following for the last several years and certainly engaged in now uh, out here in, in Prague at Radio for Europe, Radio Liberty, is the leveling effect of technology that has also played a role in this pandemic. We've seen uh, the Chinese really boost their overt propaganda efforts in the wake of uh, the pandemic. We've seen the Russians, Iranians, others try to use the pandemic to enhance their geopolitical position. And I think the the concerning thing uh, for me is that we've been seeing warning signs even before coronavirus that technology has this disruptive capacity uh, within our societies. Certainly in the US context, there was a lot of discussion following the 2016 election about the uh, Russian intervention in that election, which was uh, significantly amplified by its use of technology uh, to reach Americans through the media, through which they now receive news and information. And I think uh, the latest incidents with coronavirus just show that rogue actors who want to threaten the US are gonna double down on the use of technology to try to bring Americans and others over to their side. Here at RFERL, given that we support independent journalists throughout Eurasia across uh, 22 countries, we're seeing this in pretty much every media market uh, where people uh, with a malign agenda are trying to uh, spread disinformation, spread conspiracy theories, and our societies haven't really figured out how to respond to that. Um, Some of it is building the response into our national security policy. Some of it's actually prioritizing funding of independent media outlets, not just those directly supported by the U.S. government but independent media writ large. And, uh, you know, making sure that we realize that this is really the new battle space uh, where wars, quite frankly, may start in that battle space and start to be played out in that battle space well before shots are actually fired, well before military forces are moved in, into position. And I think there's, there has not been and understanding yet in the US to that uh, effect that this is an area that we need to treat really as a new domain of uh, the battle space.
0: So, Melissa, we talked a little bit about information and public health and challenges beyond the military domain. There is in the United States often a quick turn to looking at the defense budget as an element of this puzzle in terms of shifting resources and shifting focus. What's your perspective as somebody who sits at this intersection of defense and diplomacy and development?
3: Yeah, thanks so much, Kath. And great conversation thus far. There is this refrain that um, our foreign policy is over militarized uh, for for the challenges that before us, and projecting out, you know, in the next five to ten years. And the focus does often default to to budgets, but I think we also have to consider the the broader foreign policy effects of of how we're using defense and in the military around the globe um, as often. The, the leading element or, or the default element. Um, so it's not just a, a budgetary question, but it's actually also what are the political effects of leading with that particular instrument. And I think a really illustrative case of this is um, the reliance on security cooperation, security sector assistance um, to further our security partnerships around the globe not just as a vital way of accomplishing our common security objectives, you know, for very good reasons, such as burden sharing, operational access, conducting operations with our security partners, deterrence assurance, but often as an end into themselves, Um, that there is some inherent quality that that we are seeking or, you know, that, that we want to accomplish just by having a security partnership. Without fully recognizing that when we engage in these types of partnerships and are influencing the monopoly of the use of force in these countries, it's a political choice that we're making and it has political effects beyond the security sphere. And what we've seen since the post 9-11 era is this reliance on a buy with and through approach has become an easy and importantly visible tool for us to respond to counterterrorism or other security challenges, even in the age of strategic competition. When policymakers are sitting at the National Security Council and feel that they have to do something, it's often the default uh, to to reach for security cooperation or security assistance because it's something transactional, it's visible, it's something that um, a Secretary of State or Secretary of Defense can announce that we are doing in that moment. But it's so very rarely tied to clear, defined policy outcomes. And the relationship often becomes an end to itself without clear criteria of of the risks of embarking on that relationship beyond that, that narrow operational objective, how to end the relationship if it goes badly, how to employ conditionality. And we're also not willing to be honest with ourselves um, when it does end up being more of a transactional relationship because we want to be seen as the reliable partner. We are conflicted in that way, that we don't want to have that honest conversation with ourselves. And I think we've seen this come to a head, particularly in a relationship with Saudi Arabia over the last few years, where there are clear security reasons why we need to partner with them, as well as political and economic reasons, Um, but from a defense perspective when it comes to deterring Iran, when it comes to pursuing our counterterrorism objectives. But I think, you know, given Saudi conduct in, in Yemen, the Jamal Khashoggi tragedy, It's been really difficult to calibrate and navigate that security partnership, despite significant congressional pressures, because we are so invested in the relationship itself. And so I think this is a great example of how we are very reliant on one particular tool that then crowds out decisions, constrains decisions that we need to be making from a broader foreign policy perspective. And not always the most effective tool to be investing in to further um, certain objectives.
0: So let's pick up right there, Ruben, because I think this comes back to, in some ways, to your original point about a unilateralist sentiment in the America First approach. But then, if you will, weighing in this point that Melissa raises that having partners is also very complicated if we're not thinking through those relationships. It sounds like, Melissa, your point is in in a a long-term strategic way if we're only focused transactionally and only focused on security. And this really, I think... All of that, to me, brings in in addition to what we heard from Jamie, brings into this question of the State Department itself. And you've been an ambassador for the United States. You've also worked at at Maine State in Washington. I think it's well known that you know under the Trump administration, we've made a decision as a country to kind of cut diplomacy, Congress in a bipartisan way has tried to push some of that back, but we there's no doubt that the State Department's in a weaker position than it's been in a generation. How do you see that affecting this ability to both work with others, which you have pointed out you find very important and COVID sort of points to, and then Melissa's point about being able to weigh relationships effectively?
1: Wow. Badly is the short answer, um, and, and let, but let's step through that a little bit. So first of all, the critique that the State Department in the last couple of years has been grievously weakened is not a partisan critique because there have been Republican and Democratic presidents and secretaries of state who have been giants of foreign policy and who understood the value and the criticality of our professional diplomatic service for the purpose of advancing American interests. What is clear in this administration is that the ability of the State Department to both be a vital player in the formulation of American foreign policy and the translation of presidential intent into actionable diplomatic activity, and having the credibility to be able to understand and speak for the president has been grievously wounded because of the cavalier way that President Trump and his closest associates have dealt with American diplomacy writ large. This is not news. I mean, this is, this is clearly has been widely reported in multiple venues, and and I can tell you. So, my office at the Elliott schools across the street from the State Department. And my personal office has become almost like a speakeasy for foreign service officers uh, who will come from very junior to very senior who come over regularly and knock on my door until you have no idea how bad it is, regardless of what you're seeing in the news, it's, it's, it's dramatically worse. And so to Melissa's point, managing relationships and managing partnerships are at the essence of American diplomacy. And diplomacy is not arithmetic. It is not straightforward. You know, one plus one equals two. I mean, there's the kinds of complexities that uh, Melissa describes in the Saudi relationship are uh, plenteous and a number of both bilateral and multilateral relationships we have all around the world. And being able to balance our values and our interests at any given point uh, for both immediate and long-term uh, impact is the stuff of diplomacy, and the fact that we are having such difficulty in this regard, with regard to our engagement with China, with our friends like the Canadians, for the love of God, um, or our colleagues in the European Union, is uh, quite frankly um, emblematic of the uh, profound disconnect between the understanding and trying to, you know, interpret the president's whipsaw-like approach to our interest in the world than what it takes to have a professional competent foreign policy run by professionals.
0: So, Jamie, I mean, when you're looking at Europe in particular, I mean, I can think of, obviously, there's extreme tensions in U.S. relations with some allies, for instance, the Germans. What do you think are the key tools that the U.S. is not substantially invested in right now? Is it diplomacy? Is it public diplomacy? How would you characterize it?
2: I think public diplomacy is an area where I'm all for spending more money to support the State Department. And going back to my my time working on Capitol Hill, that's something uh, that uh, I always tried to prioritize. And so I think there is an actual good news story there that sometimes gets masked. The reality is, despite the the budgets that uh, this administration has put forward every spring, bipartisan majorities in Congress have continued to fund the international affairs budget, fund U.S. international broadcasting and organizations like Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty. Despite the fact that there's very little that Democrats and Republicans in Washington can agree on these days, there has been a bipartisan majority that has continued to support uh, the international affairs budget, which I think is important to note. However, I think the way in which the United States government and uh, the State Department in particular go about public diplomacy needs to to fundamentally change, given some of the technological changes I talked about earlier, given the changing nature of the threat. So I think public diplomacy is an area that's uh, ripe for review. Some of it does get bogged down by the broader rifts in relations with allies that Rubin was talking about. That said, I think what we often forget from a U.S. perspective when we're debating these things is how much division there is in many of our allies. I'm sitting here in the Czech Republic, uh, within the European Union, even pre-coronavirus. There were fundamental forces at play pulling parts of the EU apart. There are EU member states and NATO allies that have fallen back on some of their basic commitments, both to the EU and to NATO. The three newest services here at RFERL that we've started up in the last two years are in EU member states and NATO allies, Bulgaria, Romania, and in a couple months in Hungary. Um, that's partly because of a decline in press freedom in each of those places. Bulgaria, which again is an EU member state, is ranked 111th in the world in press freedom. You just think about that for a minute. Again, an EU member state, a NATO ally, that's part of Europe, 111th in the world in press freedom. That's not an issue that was caused by the Trump administration or by American politics or American policy. Quite frankly, it's an issue that relates to some of the EU's own policies towards its member states and the EU's ability to continue to improve the rule of law, press freedom in its own members and its willingness to tackle some of these tough issues. So I think issues like that are areas where many people in Brussels would agree that this is a major challenge and would agree that it's a a prime area of potential cooperation between Washington and Brussels. But there's no one really driving that conversation right now. The final thing I just note that I think also unites us across the Atlantic, despite some of the challenges that both sides of the Atlantic are facing, is the threat. Uh, Again, sitting here in the heart of Europe over the last several weeks watching coronavirus play out, the European Union member states realized that they were getting hit by an information offensive from the Chinese. They're kind of used to this now, unfortunately, from the Russians. But that was a wake-up moment for Brussels and for the member state capitals as they saw propaganda being pushed to their citizens on a daily basis about China, the the great benefactor coming in to save European lives, to ship equipment, obviously misleading the public in many cases about the origins of that equipment, about the cost of that equipment, about the quality of that equipment, and mixed in with a healthy dose of anti-Americanism portraying America in a very biased perspective. That has led to, I think, a lot of reflection in uh, Brussels about what the EU can do better to improve its messaging. Uh, And I think that's a healthy conversation to have because, again, I think it's a conversation that needs to happen in Washington as well about U.S. public diplomacy. We often, unfortunately, I think, view these things through the perspective of that you need the U.S. to lead, everyone else to follow. Well, the reality is we're grappling with a lot of the same challenges, and honestly, I think we just need more lines of communication between European capitals and between Washington because the, the threat assessment is increasingly similar. It's just a question of what we can do together uh, to deal with these challenges.
0: Well, I know we've only scratched the surface. We could talk more about development. We could talk more about climate. But I think this is a good opener for a conversation to follow on what we do about the balance issue between defense and other tools in the National Security Toolkit. So, Ruben Brigadier, Jamie Fly, and Melissa Dalton, thank you for your time today. And I look forward to picking up the conversation there. On behalf of CSIS, I'd like to thank our sponsors, BAE Systems, Lockheed Martin, Northrop Grumman, and the Talus Group for contributing to Defense 2020. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out some of our other CSIS podcasts, including Smart Women, Smart Power, The Truth of the Matter, The Asia Chessboard, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog. And for all of CSIS's defense-related content, visit defense360.csis.org.